today on After God's Heart. And you realize that you cannot fear God and serve anyone else. Nehemiah reminded them of the impact of sin on our walk. Our personal relationship with God, we must stop compromising what we know to be right, and we must stop tolerating what we know to be wrong. Here's the answer. Stop the sin before the sin stops you. Welcome to After God's Heart with Dr. Darren Biles, author, professor, and pastor of Sunnyvale First Baptist Church. Last week, Dr. Biles began his final message in the series in the book of Nehemiah. The series is entitled, Rise Up. Throughout the series, we have been following how God was using Ezra and Nehemiah to lead his people to complete a task of rebuilding the walls and reestablishing their worship of the Lord. In the first part of this message, we saw from Nehemiah 13 that we can't afford to let sin back into our worship or our work. Let's turn again to Nehemiah 13 and continue this final message in the series entitled Rise Up in Perseverance. Johnny Erickson Tata once said, erosion is never noisy until it's too late. And by then, when you finally discover what erosion has done, you begin to see the consequences of that, and it works that way spiritually. How that spiritual erosion begins to take place, first in our minds and then in our habits. Have you ever made a promise to God that you did not keep? And I want to challenge us this morning to rise up in perseverance we're looking at impediments to sustain spiritual awakening, those things that come in that creep back into our lives and our faith that undermine the work of God. We are looking at three failed promises, but really more specifically for us, three areas we need to guard against so that the spiritual awakening that takes place in our lives can last, can endure, can be sustained. And so I want just to look at the challenges that Nehemiah faced on his return and use them as challenges for us in our spiritual lives. Number one, we cannot afford to let sin back in our worship. That's what's going on in this first section. This first section beginning in verse 4 down through verse 14, their worship had been affected. Their relationship with God had been affected. They promised to God that they would honor him in worship in chapter 10, verse 32. They failed God in chapter 13, verse 5. They promised God that they would take care of the temple in chapter 10, verse 39. They violated that in chapter 13, verse 11. In Nehemiah's absence, the people had grown lazy and complacent in their obedience. And in this first section, not only is their perennial enemy now not only living in the community, he is living in the temple. And he's living in the room where they stored the tithes. Now, just imagine that, the room that, that, that they used to hold the tithes. Now, somewhere along the way, I don't know how you get from the spiritual awakening in Nehemiah 8, and now somebody living in the room we previously committed to tithes to the Lord. I can imagine it went something like this. Well, we're not using that room much anyway. 
And so they just allow this guy to stay. It's convenient. He's somehow friends. It's not clear what his relationship was. Though when you get to verse 28 and you discover that his buddy Sanballat is now a son-in-law to the high priest, it's not hard to figure out how he got a room in the temple. And he's living there not only in the place of worship, but in the room where they committed the tithes to the Lord. It's compounded by the fact that it's the high priest who's involved. It's compounded by the fact that this is the enemy of Israel who's there. It's compounded by the fact that he's living in the temple, and it's compounded by the fact that it's the place where the tithes were stored. So now, complacency has undermined our worship. You step back for just a minute, and and you look at those first 14 verses, and you wonder, how did we get here How did they get this far away from the promises they had made to God just a few years ago? They had to know it was wrong. They had to know it's inappropriate for him to to be living there. But somehow, and it's so easy how it works in our lives as they began to tolerate a little bit and then a little bit more. And if we're not careful, just one step, justifies another and another, and pretty soon we find ourselves a long way away from where we used to be. Sin begins to creep back in as we compromise what we know to be right. As we begin to allow those small compromises a little bit at a time, and over time they begin to mount a little here, a little there, and more now, and pretty soon enemies living in our territory. Worship is compromised, tithe is suspended, and sin has crept back into their worship. But you can understand how easy that is for them as it is for us how our daily devotion to the Lord, how our obedience to God's Word can so easily be disrupted. Your faith will either lead you to worship or disobedience will keep you from it. And as that sin begins to infect our minds and our habits, it begins to impact our worship. And in a scene reminiscent of Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, when he cleansed the temple, Nehemiah cleanses the temple here. You see it there in verse 8. This was displeasing to me, so I threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room, and I cleansed the room. Nehemiah's cleansing the temple. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 21, quoting Jeremiah, my house will be a house of prayer. The worship that goes on in that place matters. What we do in our personal relationship with God matters. We must not let sin back in to our worship. In our lives, the enemy trying to tempt you to compromise your walk with him, your time with him, your relationship with him, your faithfulness to him, your giving, your singing, your worship, your study. The enemy is going to teach you, going to tempt you to compromise your worship. We cannot let sin back in our worship. The second section, beginning there in verse 15, now addressing another category. The first section talking about their worship, the second about their work. The things that we do throughout the week, but more specifically on the day of Sabbath. And I suggest to you, secondly, we cannot afford to let sin back in our work. 
our work habits, our practices. This is the second area where they were now justifying disobedience to the Lord here in their business practices. They promised God that they would honor the Sabbath in chapter 10, verse 31. They violated it in chapter 13, verse 15. It began as a small act of tolerance, not open defiance. Just a small act that they tolerated that they knew to be wrong. They were violating the Sabbath. Maybe you think, well, what's, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, number one, God told them not to. Number two, they said they wouldn't. God commanded that they honor the Sabbath. That was their day of worship. That was their day of rest. That was the day where all other activities were suspended, including their business practices. That's what's outlined very clearly in the Word of God, and they violated. Even when they said to God, they promised God that they would not. Nehemiah twice warned them, verse 15, and again in verse 17, and they didn't listen. And they're still wave after wave, time after time, tolerating what they know they shouldn't tolerate. And I want to remind us that every bold step away from the Lord begins with a timid act of tolerance of sin. I allow that habit, I allow that thought, I allow that practice in my life, in my work. God had commanded the them in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, today we, we don't worship on Sabbath. We worship on the Lord's Day. It was the day when Christ arose, the day of resurrection, the day that the New Testament honors as the day of worship. But the principle is clear. Their work now overshadowing all of their other practices, even the issue of their worship. The issue is one of conviction where I allow my work to become so significant, all-encompassing, that it even overshadows my relationship with God. Their tolerance of what they knew to be wrong led to open defiance of the Word of God, and sin begins to take root in our lives when we tolerate what we know to be wrong. I read an article in CBS News not too long ago, here was, the, here was the title of the article. Too much tolerance can be a bad thing. I thought that was a fascinating article title. I agreed with it. Uh, too much tolerance can be a bad thing. I'm not sure they understood that the same way I do, but here's what they said. They were talking about your career. They were talking about health. They were talking about relationships. But here's their quote. The problem for many is that their tolerance meter is set too high. They put up with far too much for far too long. And that's true in our faith, where we tolerate far too much in our lives for far too long. Their tolerance of those sinful practices led them to open defiance of God's word, and worse, they weren't convicted about it. Even when Nehemiah twice called them on it, they still weren't convicted about it because that's what sin does. It blinds us to the truth of God's Word. It blinds us to the reality of conviction from the Holy Spirit. And if we're not careful, the things we tolerate today will control us tomorrow. Those little things that we allow to continue in our lives, those habits that you allow to continue will take control. We must not allow sin to come back 
into our work. Well, that's the second section. You see the third section beginning in verse 23 as Nehemiah now having addressed their their worship and their work. I want you to see now a third area that Nehemiah begins to address. And I challenge us as well. We cannot allow sin back into our walk. Here, now, Nehemiah emphasizing how their commitments where they had failed God, influencing their personal relationship with the Lord and in their home. They promised to forsake any foreign influences in their faith in Ezra 10 and in Nehemiah 9, and they violated it in Nehemiah 13, 23 and 24. You look in verses 23 down through verse 29, and you begin to see the impact of how these foreign influences had now corrupted their faith. Verse 24, as for their children, half of them spoke the language of Ashdod. None of them knew how to speak the language of Judah, but only the language of his own people. So now it has influenced their families, it's influenced their homes, it's influenced their relationship with God and Nehemiah reminded them of the impact, how those foreign marriages had even impacted the wisest man who'd ever lived. Even Solomon fell victim to that, Nehemiah reminded them. What's the problem? God said not to. They promised that they wouldn't. In fact, twice they had promised that they wouldn't do that. Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 10, they had two times promised that they would not allow foreign influences into their faith, into their family of faith. Now the people were wanting to follow God, but they were wanting to do it their own way. They were wanting to say they were believers in God, but they were wanting to live like they choose passage in 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 33 talking about the northern kingdom of Israel where it says they feared God and served other gods. They feared God and they served other gods. Two statements that cannot go together. Part of the reason for God's judgment on the northern kingdom but exactly what's going on here in Nehemiah 13 still feared God but allowing other gods, allowing other things, allowing other practices to undermine their faith, they cannot go together. In the end, our enemies living in the temple, the grandson of the priest is now related by marriage to one of the worst enemies of the land. And you realize that you cannot fear God and serve anyone else. Nehemiah reminded them of the impact of sin on our walk, our personal relationship with God. We must stop compromising what we know to be right, and we must stop tolerating what we know to be wrong. Here's the answer. Stop the sin before the sin stops you. We've got to put a stop, an end, a no to the sin as it begins to creep back in slowly into our lives, corrupting the promises we had already made to God. Because if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves in direct violation of the promises we made to God, doing the very things we told God we would not do because we've allowed it, we've tolerated it, we've compromised 
And all of those things have had an impact. There's a fun character study here in Nehemiah chapter 13. I want you to keep your finger here in Nehemiah 13 and turn back one book to Ezra chapter 9. Interestingly, facing the same problem of marrying foreign women and bringing their faith into our worship practices. So Ezra faced the same problem that Nehemiah did. Ezra facing it in Ezra chapter 9. Watch Ezra chapter 9, look at verse 3. When I heard this matter, I tore my garment, I tore my robe, and I pulled out some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. Ezra heard about the problem, and he pulled his own hair out. All right. Now, Nehemiah 13, I want you to see a little bit different reaction as Nehemiah faces the same problem. Okay, so verse 25. I quarreled with them, I cursed them, I struck them, and I pulled out their hair. So Ezra, facing the problem in Ezra chapter 9, pulled out his own hair. Maybe you're an Ezra. Pull out your hair in crisis and trial. Nehemiah faced the same problem, and he didn't pull out his own hair. He pulled out everybody else's hair. How do you deal with the crisis? Nehemiah contended for God's way alone. Nehemiah closes Nehemiah thir chapter 13 with sort of a summary statement. I purified them from everything foreign. I got rid of it. Well, that's the answer. You get rid of it. I don't allow it in my life. I prevent it from coming in. I don't allow it traction in my life. I don't allow it in my home. I don't allow it on my computer. I don't allow it in the books that I read. I don't allow it in the thoughts that I think. I stop tolerating sin before sin takes control. Because if we're not careful, what we tolerate today will control us tomorrow. We're going to have to rise up in perseverance. I'm a fan of the Olympics. I particularly like the Summer Olympics. I, I watch all the Olympic games, but I'm a big fan of Summer Olympics. So I was particularly fascinated given the history in 2004 when the Olympic Games returned to Athens. So I, I was excited knowing the history of how the Olympics began in Athens and they came back to Athens in 2004. And so I like the track events. And so I was fascinated watching the track events and I watched all of the track events, but I was particularly amazed at this one event that everybody saw coming. It was the 110 meter high hurdles. I, I never did the high hurdles. I, I wasn't good enough to do that, I guess. I don't know. I never did the high hurdles, but I was fascinated by it. So it's, it's 110 meters. So it's a short race. You can Google that. I watched it this morning. It takes about 11 seconds to watch. Don't do it now. Two guys leading up to this event were really the only two focus points of the 110 meter high hurdles. One, an athlete from China named Liao Sheng. The other, an athlete from France named Laji Dugaray. Dugaray, taller, longer stride, and had a different kind of approach to his race. Liao Shang, a little bit shorter, a little bit quicker out of the blocks. And so in every race, they started pretty much the same. Liao Shang, would, he's, not, he's not the fastest, but he's the first out of the blocks. He's quick. 
And so when the race would begin, Liao Sheng would be out in the race, and then it's 110 meters. He just had to hold everybody off for 100, 110 meters. Duke Ray's strategy was different. He's taller, big, tall, lanky, legs, smooth stride. He would never get out of the blocks first. In fact, he's usually last. But his long stride begins to creep up. And about hole, hole, about hurdle, five or six, you could see it coming. It happened in all of his races. He'd begin to catch up, and usually about hurdle eight, nine, ten, he'd pull out and, and he'd win. So in the heats leading up to the finals, everybody was watching what was going on. You, what we all knew, it was going to be Ducare and Liao Sheng. So in the preliminary events, they never ran against each other because you don't want them competing until the finals. And so each one would win their heat, leading all the way up to the finals. And in the finals, you can watch it. They're in lanes three and four because that's where your fastest two athletes are. There are eight runners on the track, but nobody else really mattered in this race. It's just those two. The camera angles just on those two. You see Liao Sheng, Ducare, Sheng in lane four, Ducare in lane three. Side by side, the fastest two athletes in the world. Gun goes off, starts exactly like every other race. Liao Sheng's quicker. He got out of the blocks. Got to the first hurdle, second hurdle, third hurdle. Liao Sheng's in the lead. But Ducare next to him, taller, lankier, smoother stride. Little by little, he's creeping up. And almost on script, you, 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 you think you know what's about to happen before it happens. So about hurdle seven, eight, Ducare begins to pull up. And I was thinking, I know what's going to happen. But then hurdle 10. Ducare, with his lead leg, clipped the hurdle. Tried to catch his balance, but if you've ever watched hurdles or attempted to do it on your own, when your lead leg gets tripped up, you're really going to go down, and he did. I have an image on my computer screen of that moment. It's a picture taken from the finish line of Liao Sheng, who will win the race and the first athlete from China to win a gold medal in the 110-meter high hurdles. But the angle is really on Ducare. He's stumbling, and he's really horizontal to the track with his eyes on the finish line that he's about to fall short of. Realizing all the work that he'd put into that race was undone because he stumbled before the finish. I've seen it happen in Christian lives. I've seen it happen in ministers' lives. I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen it happen in families. I've seen it happen in believers, how we start off right. We start the race going strong for God. We're hot for Christ. We, we profess faith in Jesus and we mean it. Somewhere along the way, there's a hurdle. And we stumble and we fall short of the finish. Nobody really knows who came in second fourth or eighth because we only celebrate who won that race but we remind ourselves of what might have happened if a stumble didn't take place I'm calling us 
rise up in perseverance. Don't allow complacency in your life. Don't allow that sin to come back in. Don't allow those habits to sustain. Don't allow those thoughts in your mind. Don't allow those visual images on your computer. Don't allow that word on your screen. Nothing else that undermines your faith can be tolerated or it will compromise your walk with Christ. And you will find yourself stumbling before the finish line and missing the goal. When the Apostle Paul came to the end of his life, he said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. That's my goal for my life, and it's my hope for yours. I don't just want to finish, I want to finish well. There is so much at stake. We can't afford to stumble now. We must stand up in our faith. We must finish the course. We must rise up for the glory of God. We've entitled this program, After God's Heart. The name of the program comes from the title of my newest book, After God's Heart. It's a story of the life of David, the challenges, the lessons that we learn from David, and how we can apply those to our lives. We'd love to send you a copy of my book when you support this ministry with your generous gift. Now here's Ed to give you more details on how you can get a copy of my book. Thanks, Dr. Biles. You can get a copy of After God's Heart today. Today by contacting Sunnyvale First Baptist Church at 972-226-7105 or sunnyvalefbc.com. You can also write us at 3018 North Beltline Road, Sunnyvale, Texas 75182. Attention after God's heart. And here's a final word from Pastor Darren. Thanks, Ed. If you're ever in the North Texas area, I want to invite you to be our guest at Sunnyvale First Baptist Church. We have Sunday school classes for all ages. Our worship service on Sunday mornings begins at 1030. We would love for you and your family to be our guest anytime you are able at Sunnyvale First Baptist Church. Once again, on behalf of Dr. Biles, we want to thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ed Petty, and we'll see you next time on After God's Heart.